Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And two incredibly special guests. And uh, you may be able to guess what we're talking about by who I'm about to introduce. We've got Julie Miller. Hi. And we've got Aaron Vanderhoof. Hello. Aaron, I'm I'm pretty certain this is your first time on Little Goldman. Julie, I know you've been on before. This is your first time, right, Aaron? Oh, certainly. Yeah, definitely. What a thrill. So if you're a regular VF reader, you may guess that we're going to talk about Spencer, uh, which is out in theaters now and uh, has been the subject of many slacks within VF. And um, Aaron and Julie are both uh, movie fans and uh, royal obsessives and Diana obsessives. So we will have a lot to talk about. Um, at the end of the episode, you'll be able to hear Rebecca Ford and her conversation with Edgar Wright and Chrissy Wilson-Cairns, the director and writer, respectively, of Last Night in Soho. And before any of that, we're going to talk about AFI Fest, which kicks off in L.A. this week. We're going to talk about some theater back on the East Coast. Um, and then this week brings some final information about two huge contenders we've been waiting on, which is House of Gucci, which we'll talk about a little bit, and then Licorice Pizza, which is going to loom as a mystery a little bit longer. Um, so I'll throw to you, David, first to talk about AFI Fest, since you are our uh, token Angelino of this episode. Um <laughs> It's going to bring the world premieres of Tick, Tick, Boom and Swan Song, the Mahershala Ali movie, which uh, Rebecca is writing about this week, actually. You can read that. And also Sing Too, uh, Close to My Heart, which we can talk about. Um, where is it fitting in on the awards circuit this year uh, from your perspective? Um, it, it always occupies a kind of late-breaking stage for, for certain movies. Most infamously, a few years ago, it, it housed the premieres of Selma and American Sniper, which both went on to get Best Picture nominations. That was the same year. It was. What a combo. Um, and and the, the surge of American Sniper followed by the steady fall of Selma was, was much discussed from what I remember <laughs> that followed those AFI premieres. But yeah, this year you have contenders premiering that I, I think are a little smaller overall than than those movies. I don't know that either are, are pretty heavily in the best picture conversation right now, but both... I uh, feel like they have pretty significant acting plays to work with in Tick, Tick, Boom, Andrew Garfield, and Swan Song, Mahershala Ali, as you mentioned, Katie. And both have, you know, really strong ensembles and uh, might be able to resonate, um, especially streaming movies, um, and, and, and hit a little bit uh, going later into the season. Other than that, I think that the big thing to watch for is this is the week that King Richard's campaign really revs up. It's the closing night film. Will Smith is in town and he is making the rounds. He was he was everywhere last weekend on the Warner Brothers lot for the film. And and so that that campaign's really kicking in in earnest this weekend ahead of its um, theatrical in HBO Max release next weekend. So um, that that's really what I'm looking for is how big that movie starts to play uh, now that everyone's gearing up for it. Yeah, this is kind of like a large-scale schmoozing opportunity um, in Los Angeles. And, you know, I saw that the premiere of Belfast happened in L.A. this week, and Jamie Dornan got on stage to sing like he does in the movie. And um, I think the Power of the Dog crew is all in L.A. right now. It's kind of like a um, a mini version of what Golden Globes weekend um, used to be, where all of a sudden everyone's available and they can all shake as many hands as, as possible in a short period of time, right? Yeah, you just mentioned the three best picture frontrunners, and it is not it is, it is not a coincidence that this is the week that all three have all their talent in town um, to start talking about their movie. <laughs> yeah, and there's going to be some um, familiar festival titles there. I was just looking at the lineup, like Red Rockets there, Worst Person in the World, Petite Maman, Parallel Mothers. So it's it's an opportunity for some of the festival energy to continue as in addition to some of these big, splashier titles. The fact that it's um, Tick, Tick, Boom and Swan Song, I do think, points to what we have talked about before that the best actor race is maybe the most exciting this year because you've got Andrew Garfield and Mahershala Ali as both really strong contenders from there and I'm so excited to be able to talk more about Tick Tick Boom which uh, as Rebecca and I both hinted we're excited about so stay tuned I guess um, all right, Richard, I'm throwing to you to jump back to the East Coast. I hear Broadway's back. I've been told Broadway's back by many people. They've been, like, knocking on my door and yelling it at me. It's, like, on television all the time. Is Broadway, in fact, back? 
I, I have to say it's back and I'm back, which is exciting. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to highlight a couple things that I saw recently because we don't spend a lot of time talking about the Tonys on this awards podcast, but they are, you know, theater's biggest awards. Um, we did talk about them, like we, you and me and Chris Murphy, like a month ago or so. Because that's uh, true. Well, that's they were true. fun. They were fun so, this year. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're doing we're doing a little more Tonys uh, on this podcast, which I'm I'm uh, a fan of. Um, but yeah, I saw the Lehman trilogy, which is this big Sam Mendes production that played in London and. Uh, it was at the Park Avenue Armory in New York pre-pandemic and then was going to be on Broadway and then obviously shut down and is now back. Um, and it's this three and a half hour, three actor epic about the Lehman Brothers and, and came to America in the 1840s and all the way up to when it the this bank, you know, this huge bank shut down uh, at the 2008 financial crisis. Um, it's a really astounding piece of work, um, a really great reminder of what, you know, Sam Mendes can do with a lot of theater money <laughs> and, mm. uh, and ingenuity. I, re- I realized when I was reading the program that Sam Mendes is now Sir Sam. He has been knighted. Oh, good for him. Uh, for his contribution to the arts. Um, is he not a Samuel? Is he just Sam? Well, oh, I guess maybe he is Sir Samuel. I'm not sure, but um, maybe either when you're way. famous. I mean, I guess it's Sir Elton John, not Sir whatever his real name is. So you can kind of make it work. Right. That that's very true. Yeah, and the three actors in it: uh, Simon Russell, Beale, Adrian Lester, and Adam Godley are absolutely terrific. I don't know how the hell you. I mean, they should all get nominated for, I guess, featured actor. Although they're all they're all the lead. Um, but they play, you know, many, many characters while also sort of narrating as the original Lehman Brothers or not really. It's it's complicated. But anyway, people should go see it. I think it has an open ended big Broadway run. So um, if you can find a ticket and in, in, are in the New York area, I highly recommend it. I'm just going to follow up that Wikipedia says it is Sir Samuel Alexander Mendy CBE. There you go. For the there record. Oh, and also, if this is extra enticement, um, I mentioned the actor Adam Godley, who some may remember as the uh, lovable principal from Love Actually, who introduces the song that turns into All I Want for Christmas is You. Mm. So if that, if that sweetens the pot any, but it's really good. It is not a forgiving tale about the Lehman Brothers. I've read some reviews that have sort of suggested that I disagree. I think it's kind of almost like there will be blood in terms of uh, a look at this, like the dawning of a sort of American horror story. And it's, it's really compelling uh, for that. So that was great on the bigger scale of things. On the smaller scale, and unfortunately going to close at the end of this month, there's Dana H., which was off-Broadway a couple years ago, saw it there, and uh, I saw it on Broadway this past weekend, and it's with the the great Deirdre O'Connell, who people might remember from one scene from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but has done lots of other great work uh, in TV and film and uh, theater, and it's a one-woman show, sort of, two women, because it's Deirdre O'Connell lip-syncing to audio of the playwright Lucas Nass' mother, speaking about an ordeal she went through in the late 90s, that it's just one of the most compellingly singular pieces of theater I've ever seen. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, even though I'm a Drag Race fan, have said that like lip-syncing is serious, awards-worthy acting, mm. and yet Deirdre O'Connell, uh, with all of her physicality and very deft Lip syncing uh, makes a very strong case. I would love to see her get a, uh, an actress nomination um, at the Tonys because it would, I think, be a first for a lip synced performance. Wow. I didn't know we were waiting for that first to happen at the Tonys, but we always love history being made, right? Well, you could always wonder, like, which celebrity that they put into Chicago also lip synced, but they also didn't get Tony <laughs> nominations. So uh, that'll be a blind item for, uh, you know, the, the Patreon that we do when you reveal who's the story right. behind that. <laughs> there you go. Um, anything else that you uh, caught on the stage? Oh, yeah. Well, so Dana H. is running in repertory with another show from the Vineyard Theater, the off-Broadway, let you know, sort of mainstay. Um, uh, and that's called Is This a Room? Also closing, unfortunately, at the end of November. That is not lip-synced, but it is um, actors performing exact transcript of the, I believe, 70 minutes when FBI uh, agents first came to Reality Winner, the um, NSA whistleblower um Mm -hmm. when they came to her house and so it's a very like docudrama but with a strange sort of theatrical tint to it that's really striking and sad but also kind of feels more supplemental to a bigger story that you then need to read about after you see the show i didn't unfortunately i mean embarrassingly didn't know enough about reality winner before i saw it um but yeah they're both great um i highly recommend you know, if you can make it by the end of this month, and again, you're in the New York area, go see Dana H. Uh, or Is This a Room? And then later on, Lehman Trilogy. 
Is there something about uh, in this period when we're talked, you know, kind of caught ourselves up being like, is West Side Story going to be a Best Picture contender? Who can win Best Actor? That going back to theater where, you know, the Tonys are a little bit further in the distance, the performances are more immediate. Does it feel like a palate cleanser for you in this frenzied time of movie year? Yes, it's a nice little break uh, from from all that. Okay, well, uh, back to award season frenzy after that nice break uh, with Broadway. Um, House of Gucci has been screening all over the place. I haven't seen it yet. I will say straight up. But uh, David and Julie and Richard, you all have. And social reactions are now allowed and awards discussions. So we want to talk about it some. This isn't going to be a formal review. Uh, Richard, you will be reviewing it later on with that embargo lifts. But I do think... Everyone has just been wondering, like, what is this movie going to be? Is Lady Gaga going to win an Oscar? What will a Best Actress race that comes down to Lady Gaga and Kristen Stewart do to the Internet? Um, And Julie, you saw it. And I think you were kind of uh, dazzled by a lot of things in it. So how's House of Gucci, Julie? I mean, I was dazzled by the the length. It was over two hours. Um, It's over two and a half, isn't it? So there were a lot of choices made in the making of this. Um, (laughs) It is enjoyable on maybe a a base viewing level. I I don't know if Richard and David agree with this. If you're a Lady Gaga fan, I'm I'm sure you'll appreciate her performance. It was not the film I wanted. Hmm. I think I think I can say that for what what was it that you wanted from this? Um, I guess a little bit more consistency. My my main issue with the film, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but everyone speaks with an Italian accent the entire time. They're all Italian characters. It makes sense. But the commitment level of the cast <laughs> members varies so wildly differently that it just kept taking me out of the film. And there's someone, Lady Gaga, who I believe spent a year practicing, only speaking with her Italian accent, taking this very, very seriously. And then you get someone like an Al Pacino or a Jeremy Irons, who I imagine are shooting much less, maybe it's one or two days of shooting. So their commitment level wasn't wasn't right there with Lady Gaga. So there's a part of me that felt a little bit bad for her because I feel like she always totally goes for it no matter what. It just seemed like, again, there were people were on two different wavelengths in terms of maybe what the movie was and in that accent commitment level. Richard and David, do you feel the same? Did I put that well? Yes. I I wrote um, in, in a piece that's up on its Oscar prospects that I, I felt like the film let her down a little bit. Uh, so I completely agree with you. Um, I think she's great in the movie. I really genuinely think she is... She like the the prep and the commitment that she has discussed exhaustively in the going method. Like it does pay off. It's it's a really layered, fun, interesting performance from her. But the length of the movie one and two the its scales kind of tip away from her and towards Adam Driver's character uh, in the last hour in a way that I think undermines a lot about the movie, frankly. But uh, but also that that character and that performance in a way that I think is going to be tricky for an awards campaign, keeping, <laughs> keeping to keeping to that analysis. Um, it's funny, Hillary Buses, our colleague, when she saw it, compared it to all the money in the world, which I, when, when I heard that, I thought, well, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. This movie is like camp and, and wildness, but it actually does at least in an awards context, make a lot of sense to me as, as this really bulky <laughs> drawn out saga of crime, family, and greed and, and the intersection of those ideas and, and telling in a kind of straightforward way and then a kind of arch way. Um, it's one I'm still thinking about, but I, I also agree with Julie that like on a base level, for the most part, I, I, I enjoyed it. I didn't, um, I wasn't suffering. Like I have been through some other movies of this length <laughs> this season. So what a um, yeah. quote. What a quote. <laughs> I wasn't suffering. <laughs> uh, I'll leave it there for now. Richard, what, what did you think? Yeah, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say because I am reviewing it, but uh, I think I texted someone afterward and I said, "It's it's official. She is an actor, Lady Gaga." <laughs> like I, mm. I, it's um, yeah. you know, you, you you after Star is Born, you start to wonder like, well, maybe that was just kind of a weird one-off thing that she did as an experiment, and it paid off pretty well, you know, very well. Um, but no, she's she's committed. She's giving lots of great interviews with you know wild talk about her intense acting process and also she's really diving in which i think is really exciting um because i think she has the the chops there 
there was probably some more I wanted from the movie that I didn't get, even at its considerable length. But um, on the Gaga front, at least, I will say comfortably that um, I was not disappointed. I mean, I think the thing I haven't thought about as much as I would have thought is that her performance in Star is Born is so natural. Like the whole thing that we were expecting of Lady Gaga movie star was like, oh, yeah, she's going to bring her like huge sense of like theater kid energy. And the Star is Born was so like kind of raw and she was such a real person. And this is such a different performance than that. And you think of someone who's given, I guess it's not her second screen performance because she's been in a couple of other things. But that's two really different, huge movie performances from someone who we underestimated as an actress until so recently. I'm, I'm impressed by that. I mean, it definitely stands out, the performance, and it's just a little bit jarring then to see, you know, Al Pacino come in there, and maybe he read the script that morning in the car ride over, and there's just a <laughs> wild disparity in, in the cast member's commitment. But I do want to say, because I share the sentiment, Jared Leto's character in that performance, I think people are going to be talking a lot about that. I think it's very meme-worthy. I don't know that that's necessarily a positive thing, but <laughs> the real-life Aldo's granddaughter, Paolo's daughter, Jer- so Jared Leto's real life daughter saw these set photos of Jared Leto in character and she said horrible just horrible I still feel offended and honestly I I kind of have that same sentiment in terms of his performance yes I mean I think it's going to be very polarizing as Jared Leto tends to be uh, Especially as be, the Morbius trailer plays uh, in every theater in America I'm going to be a little a little careful with this one but I think he is in a very different movie, <laughs> even given what you said, Julie. Like, I think if Al Pacino is somewhere else, then he's, like, on another planet. And that can be a challenge in scenes where it kind of feels like there are these, the, the two actors are not necessarily, like, speaking to each other in the same, on the same level. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. It, it's a, it's a, it was not a performance that I personally enjoyed. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Um, well, before we feel like we're stepping over a cliff of saying too much, let's just do the kind of standard Oscar thing. And, and your piece has some of this, David. It's just like, where, what nominations do we feel like are likely for this? You, you were really high on Lady Gaga, as I think everybody is. What else? Yeah, I think there's a real question of how the movie's going to perform. I mean, there's so much excitement around the movie that has little to do with how good it is, just in terms of the memes and and those trailers, which are super fun and uh, and just the cast. And, you know, there's a lot to to get excited about. Um, I, I think Ridley Scott is coming off of such a box office bomb. I mean, even for the pandemic standards in The Last Duel that um, and so many films of this size have not really been taking off. So if this film really does hit, I think there's a, there's a world in which it does carry a kind of unlikely Hollywood uh, machine uh, in a season with not a lot of box office hits um, and, and could go further than some expect. Um, right now, based having solely on seeing the film, I, I think it's largely an acting play with um, hair and makeup. And, and I do struggle to see either Leto or Pacino figuring into the final five, just given how divisive I expect those performances to be. Uh, and you mentioned costumes too, right? Given that it's literal Gucci. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, that that's always a more competitive category. It's interesting because it's not necessarily what the branch would immediately go for um, because they do like their lavish period work um, first and foremost. But I, it's definitely in the conversation. Um, but I think of, in terms of assured noms, I would say Gaga and hair and makeup feel like the only ones I can comfortably check off right now. Julie, you're kind of our costumes expert. You tend to write about it every season and you've paid close attention to this season too. How does the, how do the costumes in Gucci uh, stand out to you? Well, I was just going to grant you to say um, it's kind of worth the price of entry just to see Lady Gaga on the ski slopes in Switzerland um, <laughs> in that 80s like ski outfit. It's really incredible. So that still should just be the entire campaign right there. You're welcome. Um, That's but that I first thought, still they released, right? With that big fur thing on her head. Right. And she's like sipping a cappuccino. I think it's in the trailer too. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the visuals for me were incredible. The costumes were transportive. And I think that's just what disappointed me is with all that production value there. Um, yep. Again, the differences in acting commitment kind of completely took me out of it. 
Well, David, I, I go back to what you said in your piece and just now also about it being a, a hit, like if this is something that really lands with audiences. I do think we're still so hungry for a movie that everyone wants to talk about that can be part of the Oscar race. Like Dune is, is filling some of that at this point, but we're we kind of need more of these to just be a thing because... You know, otherwise it's going to feel small like last year did. So I'm going to I'm going to hold out hope for Hasaguchi just being something that people have fun talking about and want to reward because I think every Oscar season needs some of that energy in it. And I wouldn't count it out. Yeah. Um, OK, well, I mentioned very briefly at the beginning that Licorice Pizza has also been kind of peeking its head above the parapet. It's the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It screened seemingly every like hip person I know in L.A. was posting a picture of the marquee on Instagram over the weekend. And um, none of them are critics or reviewing it yet. And uh, in, in, in theory, reactions are still embargoed. But um, look out for those because they're coming, I think, after this episode releases this week. So um, we'll talk about it in more detail next week. Right. Yes, we will. And I can talk about Joel Kinnaman sitting in front of me with his very large body. <laughs> You're one of those hip LA people who was uh, standing I, I outside was that beautiful marquee. I was, <laughs> did the, I was did the, there when... Did the audience feel more hip than the average uh, advanced screening audience? Oh, yeah. I, I was kind of taken aback. And I, I was with my husband who was just sort of like surveying the crowd in, in, in awe and wonder and <laughs> um, at, at exactly what was happening. Because also, I mean, I'm still not... I'm still not used to screenings of the size. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it was interesting to just be in the really packed, excited room uh, in a big theater in Westwood, just get gearing up for the new PTA. It was, it was a nice feeling. You were making the case for all the uh, PR reps who don't want to send screening links anymore because those, those packed screenings, they have an impact. Indeed they do. Katie, I just have to push back on something you said. Hipper than movie critics and journalists? What, I don't, <laughs> is that possible? I don't. I don't want my uh, invitation to the New York Film Critics Circle Awards to be rescinded, so I won't. I won't follow up on that. But, We're uh, the hippest group around. I mean, come on. <laughs> I'll just say it was an honor to be among them. <laughs> Um, okay, well, you don't have to be uh, in L.A. or dress any particular way to have seen Spencer. It is open on, I guess it's not technically a wide release, but it's on almost a thousand screens in the United States right now, which is pretty big compared to, you know, how the French Dispatch opened or something else like that. And I think because it's the Kristen Stewart Princess Diana movie, you can see why. Um, so Aaron and Julie, as I said, I brought you guys in as our Diana experts. And um, Aaron, you are on the Royals beat, uh, not the movies beat usually, but I was like, Aaron, you have to go see Spencer. You have to tell me what uh, it tells you about Princess Diana. And you wrote a piece for VF, basically that, like what it gets right and wrong. Um, and I think you wrote, and I think anyone who sees the movie knows, that getting the facts about Diana right isn't really the point of the movie. Um, so what did you think it got right and wrong, kind of beyond the basic biographical stuff? Well, before I saw it, I read a really profoundly interesting piece in The Telegraph where uh, one of their royals reporters asked a lot of Diana's friends what they thought of her performance. And I think that they were all a little like, you know, tentative about it. But I think that it reminded me that going into it, that Diana belongs to all of us now. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you see Diana in Spencer, so Kristen Stewart kind of taking her on, and I think that she does a really incredible job of just kind of becoming a British aristocrat in a way that I was really surprised by. Um, she... It's, it's a very specific version of Princess Diana, and it, it isn't necessarily the person that, you know, I can imagine somebody knowing her, somebody who knows her watches it and is feels a little bit upset by how much they dwell on her pain. And I think that one of the things that everybody says about Diana, who knew her in real life, is that she was one of those people who could be super upset about something, but then, like, pull it together and look great for dinner. And I think that that... It's really productive to, to say, what if we just decide that's not the person that we're going to look at? What if we actually are going to look at the person who was in pain? Because we know she had to exist. Like, we've heard so many stories about how much she really did suffer in her life. And I think that by, you have to kind of fictionalize that and imagine it to tell a narrative like that. Because the evidence of that is like a lot more secondhand and it's lost in a way that, you know, what she looked like is so indelible to us. Um, Julie, you also have been writing about Spencer and you wrote kind of about the like the details about the royals and their their habits and their traditions going into it. And, and when you saw Spencer, how much of that did you see reflected back? How much did you want to see? Or, or like Aaron, did you kind of go along with the, the fantasy version of this? 
I went along with a fantasy version. I thought it was shot so beautifully. You are completely transported. Um, the costumes are all so on point. Um, I, I wanted to disappear for that two hours, and I really did. I think with mm-hmm. Pablo Lorraine's movies, it's always this beautifully articulated and styled mood almost more than the movie itself because it is just set in this slice of a weekend. Um, so I think you you do get that. It was different than I expected, but I really, really loved it. It just, you can't compare Spencer to something like The Crown because, again, this is so yeah. set through her eyes only. There are no other storylines. We barely even get glimpses of the other royal characters. Although I did like the very redheaded uh, woman in the background scenes of the dinner where you're like, oh, it's Fergie. She doesn't speak or you don't even know if you see her face, right. but she's there. But there were things I learned that I didn't know. For example, the the scales tradition at Sandringham every year at Christmas, I guess this dates back to Queen Victoria, guests have to weigh themselves upon entering Sandringham. And then they have to be weighed after they leave. And I guess the idea was at the time, if you gained three pounds, you had a good a good holiday. If you didn't, um, then you didn't have a good holiday. So it was just fascinating. And it, it helped me sympathize with Diana a little bit more because I can't imagine going into that situation, dealing with her eating disorder as, as she did, um, and, and being confronted with that. And, and the constant series of costume changes, I think we read about that, especially during the holidays, but it's much different to kind of see that happen across one day. Um, I read that the royals can change up to seven times a day, and dressing is such a huge um, core part of that weekend, again, to be constantly having to monitor, monitor how you look in clothing, and I imagine that was a very sort of problematic notion for her. It's also a little bit fascinating because there's actual documentation of Diana's thoughts and moods at Sandringham. Um, I think it was 1989, New Year's Eve, um, her phone was tapped and she was at at the Queen's Castle um, speaking to her friend, I think the Gilby's gin heir, talking about how miserable she was. So it is kind of crazy that we have this film that is obviously a fable based on true fact, but there are these really, I guess, real-life emotional parallels. That's kind of a funny thematic tie-in to the sign that you see. And I think the first shot of the movie that's in the kitchens downstairs, it says, be as quiet as possible, they can hear you. And it's referring to the royals hearing the servants, but it, it really reflects back for Diana feeling um, watched and scrutinized. And, and her paranoia at that time is pretty well documented. And that, that tapped phone call really proves why, right? Right. No, and it completely the- does. Well, and just her, that's another thing that she definitely was known for was her, you know, love for going down into the kitchen and hanging out. And, you know, I think that they play it for a lot of uh, tension, you know, that that both the the staff are people who will both listen to her, but also are monitoring her and, you know, gossiping about her and like subtly influencing her. And I think we'll talk to the press about her. Or yeah, exactly. And I think that the I think in kind of showing her in in that kitchen at that time, I think like really does a good job of of commenting on the the idea that she was so beloved by the people who knew her, but also those are people who are just as going just as far to kind of, you know, be the men in gray shoots that she would complain about in her life. Yeah. Um, David and Richard, obviously you guys work at Vanity Fair, so you know about Princess Diana. Um, but <laughs> assuming that you have not been as enmeshed in her life, the thing that I have been a little stuck on from seeing Spencer is to me, it's like knowing that Diana was paranoid, knowing that she struggled with bulimia, knowing that she felt kind of trapped in this gilded cage feels very familiar to me. And there's more going on in Spencer, but that's kind of the overall thematic thrust for the character. And it felt flatter to me than what I think you could do with Diana. Does that resonate for you at all? Or is, are you let so, are you less enmeshed in her story enough that that felt fresher to you? Yeah. I think when you compare Spencer to the Diana musical that (laughs) bizarrely dropped on (laughs) Netflix before it reopened on Broadway, like, I, I think that like watching the musical, you're like, okay, yep. I know this. I've seen the crown. I've read Wikipedia. I, I get it. This is the story. And so what I appreciated in contrast um, in Spencer was that it it either assumes familiarity with the story 
or it kind of doesn't you don't you don't need to have it in a way like because it's such a mood piece about a feeling and you know and yes it is specifically about diana spencer but it's really also about Kristen stewart it's about fame in general it's about the interiority of uh women who public women especially who don't often get like afforded that like in their coverage you know it's all about appearance it's all about like position and and, and all that um so i i think it it doesn't need to be like a fuller uh, yet another sort of inquest into like the specificity of diana spencer it is that in parts but i think it's more just like it's 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 a it's about a kind of more universally applied thing and and i found found that interesting and i think you know that's really what works the tension of kristen stewart's performance is that there is i think some commentary on her own uh journey through fame um and i think lorraine is kind of keen to that um so yeah, it it worked for me less as another thing in the um, canon of of Royals fiction, and more as like an art piece about, you know, sort of more generalized social things. Yeah, I felt I felt exactly the same way. Some of my favorite parts of the movie are, are not particularly narrative, narratively driven, like the soup scene, which is pretty extraordinary, or um, the just the way that uh, the camera. F- chases her through down hallways and, and, and really throws you into her state of mind. Um, I, I was happy to be there for, for a couple hours. And as I, unhappy as she is to be there, you were happy. Yeah. And that is worth unpacking. I think that the movie is, it's so stylized and it is so much as to Richard's point about, or at least the way I took it about Kristen Stewart playing Diana, um, that there are a lot of layers to the viewing experience that sit maybe a little uncomfortably after you finish. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's, it, it's a movie that does not play it straight and tell, makes that very clear from the very beginning. And, and it, it lets you sit in what that means and what it's trying to say. And, and I, I appreciated that. Julie, you got a lot of details on that soup scene in your interviews, right? I did get a lot of details. Um, let me just pull this up. I didn't realize, but they were actually playing that Johnny Greenwood um, composed track. Oh wow! Wh- while they were <laughs> filming it, which is pretty, pretty incredible. Um, so I spoke to Kristen Stewart and Pablo Lorraine about that scene in particular because it is just so stunning. Um, and I also spoke to Stephen Knight, who wrote that. Um, and both Stephen and Pablo were talking about how this is kind of the first moment where we see how surreal the film gets. So they took a lot of time and attention trying to figure out how to get that tone just right. And obviously, um, Stephen Knight, there are so many metaphors in the film, but she's swallowing this pearl, which is representative of, you know, just kind of swallowing what she has to to go about her life in this very constricted royal framework. Um, I guess I was interested, Kristen's dress, there was a lot of discussion around the color of the dress because it is so, the whole scene, the production is so beautifully styled and there's green wallpaper behind her and then the soup is colored green and I guess they wanted to recreate this pink dress that Diana wore. Um, Pink is Diana's favorite color. Kristen was very invested in this um, but they couldn't get the rights to it. It was a designer rights issue. I know so they had to at the last minute create this this other dress. Um, Jacqueline Duran is the costume designer Um, so they created this this pale green silk gown that mirrored that soup she's eating pretty precisely. I had no idea that rights to a dress was a thing, especially like a real dress worn by a real person. Right. And if you are wondering what Kristen Stewart actually swallowed, the pearl was made of chocolate. She said it was like a hard M&M. That sounds pretty good. Right? Actually, when is my when is my swag of a chocolate pearl necklace going to arrive at my house? Oh. I, need, I need some people to get on that. Erin, really um, in your piece, I think for that dinner table scene in particular, I think this applies. You wrote about how it depicts the royal family as kind of this like menacing, cold group. And that doesn't seem to totally track with what we know about the real royals in these situations where they can certainly be like unwelcoming, but not quite in the way that it shows up. And, and that struck me, too. And I wonder if you just explain a little bit about what what didn't quite land with that for you. Well, I think one of the things I think that you have 
The most striking moment is you have the you, Prince Charles leans in to Diana and says, just like in a just totally sadistic, menacing tone, like, what's the point of eating this? You're only going to, you know, regurgitate it later, which it just comes off as this like super... It's it's very intense, but I think that that's so. If memory serves, that is based on something that I that has been you know friends have reported was something that was actually said. But I feel like it, the thing about Prince Charles, the more that I have you know spent like watching him talk to strangers, is that he is the kind of person who has a a sort of weird sense of humor and likes to just like make jokes all the time. And I think that you. You don't really get to see as Prince Charles, like, mainly just being kind of like a clueless oaf. Mm-hmm. And I think that what that kind of does is... So, yeah, so for me, I think it makes it a much better story because I think that you don't need to necessarily think... Like, for the narrative, it's really, really effective. But I think that, like, when you... The more you kind of get to know about the royals, it's that they cut off all serious conversation by making jokes and by, and at Sandringham especially, like that's what people always say is that there are gag gifts that are exchanged. They're always like having a lot of fun together, but it means that it's really, really difficult for outsiders to make their way in because they're so connected to each other. And that if you have a problem, you, if everybody's too busy barbecuing and laughing and having fun, like you're not going to be able to, to deal with that at all. And so you have to, you know, ask for to schedule an appointment to talk to your grandmother about how unhappy you are. So I think it's just like a, a different layer of of like why the royals themselves are such, you know, complicated people to be around. But I do understand, like, I think that, that it just would have been, I, I like it a lot more as sort of like seeing Diana as the gothic heroine that she at times saw herself to be as well. Yeah, there's not really a lot of room for like gag gifts in in the world of this movie. Like it's it's pretty high pitched, and I like I don't know if I have a good enough grasp on the term melodrama to say that that's what it is, but it it's in that realm, right? Like where everything is very intense and people are feeling deep emotions at all times. Even if you do wind up laughing at the you know the queen and her you know a million corgis, like <laughs> you know she is not playing it for laughs. The, the the corgis are where you get the humor, and I thought that was actually really great about the movie is that there were a lot of the sort of kind of pathetic or like funny images and that's where the humor was coming from. I, another part that I appreciated um, just kind of going off of what Aaron was saying about Diana and getting these other other perspectives. Um, it's interesting because the crown, you never really see the relationship between the royals and their staff, especially the members who are lower on the pecking order. So for me, this was interesting to kind of just think about that dynamic, um, even as sort of a thought experiment, since we don't get that that often. And I was intrigued by the Sally Hawkins character. To me, I mean, she could almost be a figment of imagination. But I did think it was interesting that even though the mood was so heavy, the end of the film, and I don't know if you don't want to listen if you haven't seen it yet, it does get almost like a 90s rom-com maybe not 90s maybe like <laughs> say anything style yeah <laughs> and go hurry going to get kfc you have the you right. know a moment where she says the name of the like the title of the film in the middle it was i thought that that got a little it, it got corny it, for me it got very corny but i do at the same time kind of appreciate in some ways i saw it as an attempt because so much of the movie is about realizing how difficult this woman's life is and putting that in context with the fact that her death is going to come far too soon. I did appreciate that attempt to sort of rewrite history just a bit and say, you know, let us leave her in a moment of of like satisfaction and joy that, you know, she's not going to get in real life. And we do know that, like, those moments she had with Harry and William were real. Like, that, whether or not they got KFC, that, like, that was her escape. That was when she felt free with the two of them. And it, it is nice to leave her on that note, knowing how much sadder it's going to get from there. I, I think also cynically, um, speaking of, like, the movie's awards chances and whatnot, that final sequence when she leaves is absolutely crucial because it sets you out of the theater feeling a bit lifted, you know, and Mm -hmm. even though, you know, of course, what was going to happen to her in just a few years, but uh, that I think for me in terms of a viewer, like that sequence kind of redeemed a lot of the movie for me because I was sort of a bit like, okay, I get it, you know, um, toward the end, but 
I think it's so lovely and kind of a nice reminder of what the stakes, how high they were, and also in some senses how low they were compared to like Jackie and, you know, in, in, the, in Lorraine's previous kind of biopic, I guess you could call it, um, where that was about like America's future and, and all the presidential assassination. And this was like, she just needs to leave this horrible family. <laughs> and then she does. <laughs> and it's, it feels so good. Can I pose a question that kind of links off of that? Who, after seeing what this holiday weekend entails, the traditions, the formality, would RSVP yes to a holiday there? Well, I already, I always wait anyone who comes to my house and I expect them to do the same when I go to theirs. So that didn't really phase me. So I would say yes. You know what's funny? In all of our like jokes about Pablo Lorraine's uh, trilogy about like women trapped in these cages, no one has said Meghan Markle. Have Pablo Lorraine do Meghan Markle next. It feels like so perfectly aligned with this. She plays herself. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to oh. say, I, I feel like she would, she could, I, I feel like she would be, you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen Suits. She could give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> and Pablo Lorraine famously huge Suits fan. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> Um, any any final thoughts on Spencer? I do think we'll be talking about this a lot as the season goes on. Um, and I think the the parallels between reality and fiction and are going to be continued continually interesting to talk about. Um, and I think we would all agree people should go see it, right? Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, I'm going to see it again. Yeah, I, I really want to see it again as well. So now, as promised, we're going to hear the interview that Rebecca Ford did with Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Cairns about Last Night in Soho, which, uh, like much of what we discussed, is also out in theaters. So let's hear that now. I'd love to kind of start with how the two of you ended up teaming up for this. Where, Where did that come from? The film had been percolating in my head for 10 years before I actually, like, a script existed. And um, I basically had had the whole story figured out and even pitched it to my producers and we started developing it with film four. And then in the interim, like this is like in two, this is like 10 years ago. And whilst I was off making other movies, I hired a researcher to sort of research all the aspects of the story because it wasn't something I wanted to enter into lightly in terms of the sort of the darker themes of the movie. But uh, I'd been always planning to write it, but I hadn't actually kind of got started on the screenplay. And then whilst I was editing Baby Driver, I had lunch with um, Sam Mendes. Before he was a sir, I don't have to say Sir Sir Sam Mendes, because when I had the lunch, he had not been knighted at that point. So this is Um, (laughs) pre-knighthood. I just want to stress that. Um, So he just happened to mention in passing have you ever met Christy Wilson Cairns? And I said, no. And he goes, oh, you two would get on like a house on fire. So I took him at his word. And I think I messaged Christy and said, hey, your boss <laughs> said, said that we should, we should meet. So we went out for a, a drink in Soho itself. And um, I think this says everything about um, Soho in London, that we were sitting in the members club Soho house on Dean Street which is directly opposite a strip club, which I think that that in its little kind of just shows you the microcosm of what Soho is like. And, and now Christy can tell the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> and as we were sitting there having the drink, I just happened to mention that I used to live above the strip club opposite and that it was really loud uh, and not the best apartment that I'd ever had. And I used to work at the Tukin, the bar that's in the film. I used to work there um, for about five years. So I like I was like a Soho person. And then very quickly when Edgar was, oh, I have this idea uh, set in Soho. Can I tell you the story? So we we went on like a CD pub crawl uh, and we ended up in this, this basement bar. <laughs> CD pub crawls are my specialty, you see. Uh, we ended up in this basement bar uh, and, and sitting kind of like huddled in the corner, he told me the story for last night in Soho. Uh, and I sat there kind of like totally and utterly entranced because he's a very good storyteller. Um, and yeah, and then about nine months later, he phoned me up and he said, do you remember that story? And I was like, I, I think about it every day. And I was in Soho every day. So I was like, it was like haunting me. I was like constantly thinking about it. And he's like, do you want to write it with me? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Um, and then I think like three weeks later, I had a stack of DVDs as tall as I am, a big, massive phone book of research and the playlist. And I was cycling my way into the writer's room in Soho. Wow. Let's go back to Soho, since you both have such, um, you know, strong roots to that area. For those who may not understand it, what makes it so special, that part of town? 
Well, Soho is a square mile right in the middle of London. I mean, it's between sort of theatre land, the West End on one side, and the main shopping strip, Oxford Street, on the other side. But it is, um, and has been for hundreds of years, I guess like a den of iniquity, or it certainly was, (laughs) where like artists and writers and the criminal underworld would mix in the sense that it was um, like an area that was like a law unto itself slightly, and and that has continued in terms of it being like a place where the, the heights of show business and the kind of like the underworld sort of mingle. It was still like that when I moved to London 27 years ago, where like it was the the heart of the red light district in in London, but also the centre of the film and TV industry. And so and and you know very fancy clubs and restaurants and theatres and so. It's a very compelling and exciting, but also, you know, sometimes a disturbing place and not one that you could unreservedly recommend it to a tourist. You would have to recommend it with some notes of caution. And today it's been gentrified like most areas of London to an extent, but there's still that sort of darkness kind of just lingers. And and especially after midnight, there's always like, and this is a place that both me and Christy have spent a lot of time and you always notice that change kind of like at at the stroke of midnight where kind of things start to feel a bit edgier. So it, it is a sort of an area which feels sort of, no matter what they do to tame it, it still feels relatively sort of, um, different. And, 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 it's just a place that we spend an inordinate amount of time because it is the sort of center of the business. And Christy, you worked in a bar there, so you must have seen lots of, or at least felt lots of darkness if, if it was a late hours uh, job, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I worked in a bar and I lived above a strip club. And even even on that journey every night from the bar to the strip club, it was like maybe a three minute walk, if even that. I mean, I see a three minute stumble because I'd usually had a couple of drinks. Um, it was It was you know, always quite dangerous, not without peril. Um, And I was sort of, you know, I come from Glasgow, which is quite a rough place. So I relatively always had my wits about me. But yeah, there is, there's very much a witching hour. And we all in the bar used to know it was a full moon without looking outside because people would act so differently. And I think you do, you get a lot of tourists, but then you get people that live in Soho and have lived in Soho for, you know, 50, 60 years and that was my favourite part of working in the bars. A lot of them would come in and be regulars and you would get to hear their stories. And sometimes the stories would be told to you and sometimes you would overhear them because you get a bit, you become a bit invisible when you work behind a bar. Um, and so, yeah, I'd seen, I'd seen quite a lot of pretty, pretty weird and mad stuff and, and amazing stories. And then, I mean, we would have like, when I first started working at the bar, you know, this was quite a while ago and, um, they hadn't quite gentrified all of it yet. Like they're still sort of struggling with that. And there used to be a dominatrix that worked in the flats opposite the bar. And she would come in after every shift and tell us in graphic detail what she had done that day, which is like quite eye opening when you're 22. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, and that was just like totally taken for granted, which I think sums up Soho. Wow. You know, what? actually only the other night, like after a Q&A, I was standing in Soho waiting to meet my brother. I just done a finished a Q&A and somebody came up to me who had just been in the screening and said, oh, Mr. Wright, can I get your autograph? And I was like, sure. And he was dressed as, it was Halloween, he was dressed as Count Dracula. So Count <laughs> Dracula came up to me and asked for an autograph. And then immediately afterwards, a, a young woman came up to me and I thought she was going to ask for an autograph as well. She said, do you work here? Because I was outside the hotel. I said, no. And she goes, do you know where I could find any S&M or any bondage and I was like you are asking the wrong person but maybe somebody else will know <laughs> and I've never been asked that directly in in 27 years in living in London that is amazing it's worth pointing out she asked very politely as well so I wanted to I really <laughs> wanted to help <laughs> well it's clear this is like the perfect setting for your movie. I now understand why you chose it. But tell me a little bit about sort of the the deeper issues you, you're exploring with Last Night in Soho. Well, I think that the thing about Soho is uh, 
is that it has a lot of ghosts in, in a lot of different ways. Like there's the sort of like just the, the, the shadow of the 60s looms large over Soho. So there's one element of it where, and this is where it ties into the whole idea of having nostalgia for a decade that you never lived in, which is kind of curious in itself. And I have that. I was born in 1974, but I guess I got obsessed with the 60s through my parents' record collection and this nagging feeling that I missed out on the cool decade. And I think Soho, even though it's very exciting now, there's always this feeling that it was probably never as exciting as it was then. But then obviously on the flip side of that is like there is the darker side of show business and that feeling that that darkness is only, you know, just lurking behind the kind of the bright lights of the of the West End. And one of the reasons we started doing research, you know, like it was the first thing I wanted to do is I felt like a lot of those stories, some of them, they're not really stories that back then would get into the news. I mean, things have changed, obviously, in the last four years where victims have started to speak for themselves. But back then, stories about the darker side of show business would be at best second or third hand stories or at worst malicious gossip or wicked whispers. And so... I hired this amazing researcher, Lucy Pardy, who recently won a BAFTA as a casting director for Rocks to sort of get some real testimonials from people. So I, it, even though it's a very fantastical film and it's a, obviously a genre film and a psychological thriller, I wanted to at least ground it in some sense of fact. And, you know, and I think also that the bleak truth of it is, is obviously everything that we heard in the last four years has been going on for hundreds of years and... I guess in a way, like what the the film shows is that the danger of romanticizing the past, of the idea that there was some perfect decade, the good old days where everything was great and nothing was bad, when obviously that's not true. And, um, and, you know, and, and some things, things that are bad now were like sort of just as bad then, if not worse. And Christy, what was most interesting to you about, um, you know, what was going to be explored in this film? What did you really grasp onto the most? I mean, from the very first kind of time I heard the story, it really stayed with me because I knew exactly what it was like to be a young woman in Soho. Um, I'd come down to London from, you know, somewhere that was very much not London uh, and had come down to go to film school, which is a lot like fashion school in the sense that it's very competitive uh, high stakes uh, and quite a threatening and frightening environment when you're, you know, 21. And um, I think just knowing how it felt to be so much of a fish out of water and to feel like a loser, to feel like really, truly like you were just so far behind everyone else. And then the way that sort of intersected with the idea of like toxic masculinity uh, and the subjugation of women and, you know, the exploitation of women really caught my eye the very first time I had a story, because I'd never really seen a story tell like this, where you look at the 60s and you look at the modern day and say, oh, look, we've not really fixed this problem. And we really, truly haven't. And that, that, I think, for me, was totally my way in of just like this young woman moving to town, thinking that, oh, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be in the 60s? Because, you know, the 60s are like one of the decades that's heralded as female change, you know, like the miniskirt and the fashion and, and emancipation and birth control, you know, the pill and everything like that. They talk about, oh, wow, it's really it's really the decade where women start to come into their own. And then in the research that Edgar had kind of curated, you say, oh, that's not the case or it's not wholly the case. And I think really exploring that was very exciting to me. And tell me how the two of you work together to co-write and what is the secret to co-writing so successfully? <laughs> <laughs> Or, yeah. or rather, no, sometimes not agreeing on the same sex, so we kind of have our own separate drinks and stuff. <laughs> Christy drinks Iron Brew, which is a sort of a very a Scottish soda, which for American listeners is is sort of like like battery acid, but with more sugar in it. Is that an accurate description? It's, uh, that's the actual recipe, I believe. Um, and thank God he doesn't drink any Iron Brew because I don't like to share it. I'm an only child, you know. That, um, basically, we, we sat in an office together and, and, you know, did office hours. I'm always a big believer in 10 till 6 or something like that. Like, it's probably the best way to do it. Like, so you actually kind of... I think having, like, a third location where you meet... I think when I first started writing, when I was writing with Simon Pegg, it was always a mistake to go around each other's houses because there'd be too many distractions. 
And so you had to find another location to meet. So there was always the thing of, you know, one can't stand the other up or be late. And so we would meet in an office in Soho. We rented an office in Soho. And I basically put all of the index cards for the, the, the story, as I conceived it, up on the wall. And they all had little kind of extra sort of annotations and things. And it, I was worried that it looked a little bit like I was trying to catch the Zodiac Killer or something. <laughs> um, so but as it turns out, you, you love all that, Christy. That's, that's my aesthetic. Like all writers, serial killer chic is my aesthetic. Like I absolutely love it. And yeah, I mean, we, we get in the same room. We talk loads about character. There's two laptops, sometimes he types, sometimes I type, and we just sort of slowly break down and get into the scenes. And, and I mean, the lovely thing about co-writing with the director as well, especially Edgar, he's got such a visual brain uh, and, and such an extraordinary grasp of filmmaking and like transitions and stuff like that. So it's really fun building those and, and almost being given a sneak preview of the film by the director. Um, and then, yeah, we, we a lot of revels. And then the thing I really loved about working in Soho, revel, revels are, for American listeners, revels are delicious snacks. And Edgar and I both like the orange ones and fight over them. Um, but the other thing that was lovely about when we would work together in Soho is like we would both go and stretch our legs together and we walk around the locations that we would then shoot in or you know we would leave at the end of the day and, and I would kind of be like oh well we'll walk this way when we walk together to the tube or 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 to my bike or whatever and we'd walk literally by what we were just talking about and it was such a kind of like immersive writing experience it was so it was so much fun and also I mean I think the thing that makes co-writers work is if you actually genuinely go on with them like I, I always say you should never write a film with someone you wouldn't go on holiday with because like you're going to spend so much time in their lives and in their brains that you need to have a sort of comfort and the, the nice thing was Edgar and I were friends before and are I think even better friends now um, so that tells you it worked it was a good writing process. I was going to say as well that I think was really great about writing with Christy is that we have completely different perspectives and, and experiences, obviously, in terms of coming to London. And then we also have shared experience as well. And it's always amazing to me when I start to break it down about how much dialogue um, in the movie comes from things that have actually happened to us. So it's, it's a very strange thing to say about this particular movie to say, oh, it's very personal. Because people say, how is it, how is it personal? You know, but it, but, it, but it is. And there's, you know, like... I mean, the country mouse experience of coming to London is one thing, but just in terms of what you've heard people say, I mean, some of the most, you know, kind of the disturbing dialogue in the movie comes, you know, we've heard straight from the horse's mouth. So it's, a, it's, and it's all, you know, you, you kind of end up imbuing the script with things that have scared and disturbed you for real that you've heard, you know, firsthand. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to talk about the character of Sandy, which is Anya Taylor-Joy's character. Uh, tell me about developing her and, and how you made sure that that character, you know, would work. I think especially when we're first introduced to her, she's just this like amazingly beautiful, glamorous woman and, and you want to fall in love with her right away, which I think you do. Um, but how did you make sure that worked? I read that at one point there was a thought to maybe not have her have dialogue. Well, that was uh, before Christy came on. That was one of my sort of ideas was that the dreams were just kind of like more abstract and just musical. And it was actually Christy, as your sort of big note straight away was, I think, for Eloise to fall in love with Sandy and therefore the audience to fall in love with Sandy, you have to have her speak and she has to be a more, you know, not just a dream girl, but like sort of, you know, a character. You know, because obviously for somebody to come in, I've been looking at it sort of so subjectively to have this idea. And it was, it was, it was such a great thing because I think the Sandy scenes expanded and we started to write dialogue for them, which is some of the most fun parts to write, is write the kind of the dialogue for the 60 sequences. And also as a, as a result of that, because the Sandy character started to expand and we added scenes, like Christy suggested, adding the audition scene, which wasn't previously in the outline, it was at that point I also realized that Anya Taylor-Joy, who I previously pegged to play Eloise, should be playing Sandy instead. Because I talked to her about it even before I'd met Christy. I'd done exactly the same thing with Anya Taylor-Joy over coffee in 2015 in Los Angeles. I told her the entire plot of the movie, but with the idea of her playing Eloise. And then 
as we started to change the screenplay and expand the Sandy role, then I thought Anya should be playing this part. But also to answer your question as well, the in a way, like the sort of the whole premise of the movie was to sort of see a twin narrative of two girls coming to London. Because there are a lot of 60s films where, like a genre of films, and, and this speaks to the idea of like men sort of exploiting sort of um, liberated women, which would happen a lot in the 60s where sort of, um, you'd have these movies like made like in the 60s where they seem to be punishing the younger generation. You'd have these movies where, like, Starlet comes to London and has the audacity to want to be successful and she'll be roundly punished for her efforts and the city chews her up and spits her out. And there's so many of those movies and I found them always quite curious because I start to understand, you know, they're presented as being the sexational expose ripped straight from the headlines. But then you start to realise, oh, this is the older generation, like, slapping the wrist of the younger generation. So that was one of the ideas is what if we could subvert that and, you know, it's, and, and actually have like the, a modern woman who can kind of go back to the 60s in her dreams become obsessed with this other story, this other coming to London story. And Thomason McKenzie is so good in this role. I think it was, I mean, I already knew she was talented, but to see her really get to dig into this arc and play basically an adult character for the first time, I thought was really um, wonderful. How did you know that she was going to be the right person to take that on? Because that is a, a pretty demanding role. I think so. I take big leaps of faith. I didn't know Anya Taylor-Joy could sing before I asked her to sing oh, no. in the movie. And she reminded me of this the other day. She goes, you didn't know I could sing, did you? I said, no, I just assumed that you were you could. <laughs> and in a similar way, Thomas McKenzie, I had seen her... When I cast her in the movie, Jojo Rabbit hadn't come out yet, um, but I had seen her in Leave No Trace, the Deborah Granick film, which is just extraordinary. And actually, Naira Park, my producer, was the first person to mention Thomas in. And I think because I'd seen Leave No Trace, I wasn't entirely sure whether that was a non-actor or, or, you know, it was like, she's so naturalistic in that part. And I'd never seen her in anything. So I, I, again, with Thomas in, I just had this feeling about her. We all did, because we thought she was amazing in Leave No Trace. I didn't, you know, when I met her, she was, I met her in Los Angeles and um, I think she was 17 then, but we knew she'd be 18 by the time we started shooting. And it's not, it's rare that you get to cast an 18 year old as an 18 year old. And um, I remember the two things is I remember like that she'd read the script and she wanted to do it. And I said, was there anything in the script that made you uncomfortable? Was there anything that you would feel uncomfortable shooting? And Thomason said, no, no, no. And she later said to me that she was lying about that. <laughs> but also, I did say, I remember afterwards, I, you know, I spoke to my producers, Eric Fel Felner and Naira Park, and uh, they said, well, how was Thomason? I said, well, if we cast her, I think it would make the film infinitely more scary because you'll just be concerned for her well-being in a way because she's an 18-year-old girl in the movie. And I think the thing is, is what's amazing about Thomasin is she's got this kind of fragility and strength at the same time. And it's this sort of like stunning to watch because at no point having met her, and especially re I read her as well, I, I didn't question for a second whether she could do it. I just thought she's going to be great. And then the other thing about it that I think she says this as well is both of us feel the same way about this, is that her coming to London to make the movie as an 18-year-old and Eloise coming to London in the movie to study at college sort of became the same thing. They went on the same journey together. So I think for sort of Thomason, it was such a huge, crazy like marathon to go on, to be in every scene of the movie. And, you know, she's funny and she's kind of dramatic and it's just... I think the performance is just brilliant and given that she's only 18 years old, you just kind of think, well, this, this person can do anything. Yeah, she's pretty amazing in it. We're almost out of time here, but I did want to ask a more general craft question for both of you. Um, how do you deal with writer's block and what are the tools you need to have with you whenever you're writing, no matter what, no matter where you are? I am a big believer in creative procrastination. So what that is, is like sort of like, it's like not looking at Twitter, that's bad procrastination. <laughs> but like watching films, like reading, like listening to music, it's all within the arts. 
you never know, it might unlock something. So I never feel guilty if I'm stuck. I never feel guilty taking a couple of hours off and watching a movie. Because you never know, you might be in another movie at the cinema, watching them at home and you're thinking, ah, I got it, <laughs> you know? So I, I believe creative procrastination is always the way to go. And usually how I start writing, this is what happens when I'm not sitting in a room with Christy. It's usually a lot of creative procrastination in, in the lead up to doing something. Reading the paper, reading like, you know, kind of like, when I was writing Baby Driver, I used to read the crime section of the Los Angeles Times every day and just like sort of and just kind of like make little notes and stuff and just doing things that are like tangential to what you should be doing. And it's not actually <laughs> writing words in the screenplay, but it all ends up helping, you know? Christy, what about you? What's your secret? I mean, I think, so there's two cures. One is to go on holiday, because I find the minute I'm on holiday, I'm instantly like, I should be writing. I've got this idea. I'll part in this down. Maybe I'll just make this bullet point note list. Um, so yeah, going on holiday. And the other one is, so I like to do two projects at once. So when I get stuck on one, I go to the other, um, which is sort of like creative procrastination, but I'm constantly earning money. <laughs> that's, that's, it's very similar. It's very similar to that. That does it for this week's show. You can find us all at Vanity Fair. You can find a lot of articles about Spencer, of course, and Hasaguchi and uh, Licorice Pizza and so much other stuff. Um, you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Aaron. At Vanderhoofy. And Julie. Julie W. Miller. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-401-9739. We still love hearing from you and we'll continue answering your questions. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for our nomination for next year's Oscar host goes to Aaron Vanderhoof. The queen and her a million corgis. 